Can Be New Life Foursquare Church welcomes you. We're located at 2350 Southeast Territorial Road, just off Highway 99E. We hope the following message will be a blessing to you. Well, tonight what I'd like to do is um, invite you to turn in your Bibles to John chapter 3. We're continuing our study in the book of John and uh, continuing our theme for this year 2011, which is to return to our first love. Now, a few weeks ago, two weeks ago, Pastor Ron spoke on John 3.16. It's one of those most familiar and quoted verses in all of the Bible. And I think it's that way because in one single verse, it really explains some important things about God's heart, what He feels and how He thinks about us. And it also, in one single verse, explains the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ. That verse says, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. It's a wonderful verse. But I um, am convinced that the next five verses are no less important. And I want to talk with you tonight about a passage found in John 3, verse 17 through 21. And I think this is an important passage, especially in light of this theme this year of returning to our first love. God is calling us to return to our first love, and this passage explains some things that we need to know about how to do that. Jesus continued John three sixteen in the next verse saying, For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. He who believes in him is not condemned. But he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation, that the light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light lest his deeds should be exposed. But he who does the truth comes to the light that his deeds may be clearly seen that they have been done in God. Uh, As I was thinking about this message, uh, I gave it an interesting title. It came to me here a week or so ago and I've called this message Double Exposure. Those of you who are... Uh, camera people have perhaps had the unfortunate experience of a double exposure. I guess we don't have that problem anymore with digital cameras. So it has to be the old film thing. Uh, Years ago, you young people, you'll just have to trust me here. We used to have film that you would put in a camera and sometimes you had to manually advance the film. And if you forgot to do that, you'd take one picture over the top. And so you'd have two pictures in in one. It was a double exposure. Okay, never mind. I've called it double exposure because this passage, uh, I think, really points to a couple of root issues concerning why our relationship with God may be lacking or even absent altogether. And I think the first reason we struggle to believe and trust in God is because we fail to understand God's motives. After nearly 30 years in the ministry, I've concluded that one of the reasons people reject Jesus Christ and a personal relationship with God is because they don't believe God is loving and good. 
and that he truly wants the best for them. I suppose this this thought and this feeling goes clear back to the first lie that was ever told, and it's recorded in Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. In this passage, we know the familiar story there where the devil tempted Eve in the Garden of Eden, and he said this, Has God indeed said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Then the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. If you look at that passage really carefully, what you are going to discover is that the devil here is characterizing God in a very negative light. He's accusing God of lying to Eve. He's he's accusing him of being selfish. God just wants to keep some good thing from you, Eve. He just doesn't know, he doesn't want you to know what evil is. They already knew what good was. It's ironic that the devil would try to characterize God as evil, malicious, selfish, and as a liar when those are exactly the character traits that described him. But ever since that day, I think mankind has struggled to view God in a positive light. Maybe you grew up with some kind of image of God in which you were pretty afraid of him. He wasn't someone that you thought you wanted to get to know because, after all, he is almighty God. I've had this happen so many times, I can't even recount it, how many times I've talked and counseled with people, and they really struggle to believe that God is a loving and good God. And the main reason is, is because the way, the relationship they had with their earthly father wasn't very good. And they simply transferred that to their heavenly father. So we have a lot working against us when it comes to wanting to draw close to God or have a love relationship with him because quite honestly, we're not too sure what kind of a God he is if he really loves us. Throughout history, people have viewed God as angry, a vindictive judge, someone who takes pleasure in human suffering. In fact, people blame God for their handicaps and sicknesses and diseases and they're angry at him because they think he's the cause of all of the suffering and pain they deal with. Not only that, we call earthquakes and hurricanes and tornadoes and other natural disasters acts of God. It's ironic, isn't it, that We attribute all of those natural disasters to him, but we don't thank him for the sunshine and the rain and the flowers. We don't call those gifts of God, do we? Where does all this negative characterization of God come from? Well, it started over 6,000 years ago in the Garden of Eden. We're still fighting with it today. No wonder people are reluctant to draw close to God when they imagine that he is looking at them with a disapproving, angry, condemning countenance. But Jesus is telling us something straight out in this passage. 
He's saying that God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. He didn't send him here to condemn people, but that the world through him might be saved. We read that in, in John 3.16, that God's motivation to send his only begotten son to suffer and die on our behalf was love. God so loved that he gave his very best so that we wouldn't perish. And God proved this was his heart and his motivation as we examine how Jesus related to those who heard him speak and observed his life. I want to give you a few graphic examples. The first is in Matthew 14, verse 14. This passage says that when Jesus went out, he saw a great multitude and he was moved with compassion for them and healed their sick. Now, we need to stop and try to imagine what that is. In other words, he's not looking at a crowd of people with disgust, irritation, anger. He's looking at this crowd of people and he's just heartbroken. He's moved with compassion. And, the, and because of that heart motivation and the thing that he felt, the, the next thing he did is, I want to heal you. <laughs> I want to make you whole. Mark chapter 6, the verse 34, it says, Jesus saw a great multitude and was moved with compassion for them because they were like sheep not having a shepherd. So he began to teach them many things. Why were they lost and wandering? They were ignorant. They were unaware. And Jesus began to teach them principles of the kingdom of God and how life was intended to be lived. He did something about our lost condition. Even when somebody was guilty of sin and deserved to be judged and condemned, Jesus refused to do so. In John chapter 8, verse 2 through 11, we get this amazing example, and this is going to paint a picture in your mind for sure, of how Jesus treated a woman who was guilty of adultery and deserved to be stoned to death according to the law of Moses. The passage says this, Now early in the morning he came again into the temple, and all the people came to him. And he sat down and taught them. Then the scribes and Pharisees brought to him a woman caught in adultery. And when they had set her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act. Now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned. But what do you say? I want to stop right there. Paint this picture in your mind. It's the temple. Jesus had been sitting there teaching. Crowds around him, religious leaders, scribes, Pharisees, all these people are surrounded. They're listening intently, and they're trying to figure out a way to discredit him. So there's probably hundreds of people surrounding him, and then some of these religious leaders find this woman guilty of sin, they force their way to the crowd and they put her right there in the middle. Everybody's watching. I wonder what Jesus is going to do now. Every eye is fixed on him. They said this, testing him, that they might have something of which to accuse him, but Jesus stooped down and wrote on the ground with his finger as though he did not hear. 
I've often wondered, what was he writing? What was he scribbling in the dirt? So when they continued asking him, he raised himself up and said to them, He who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. And again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. Then those who heard it being convicted by their conscience went out one by one, beginning with the oldest even to the last. And Jesus was left alone and the woman standing in the midst. When Jesus had raised himself up and saw no one but the woman, he said, Woman, are there... Where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said to her, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Wow. He who has seen Jesus has seen God. That's how God wants to deal with us. That's how he wants to relate to us. God isn't interested in our death or our destruction. He's not amused or entertained by our suffering. In fact, 2 Peter 3, 9 says that the Lord is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. He longs for us to be healed and restored. He longs for us to be with Him. God wants us all to be saved from the destructive consequences of sin, which includes death and eternal separation from His presence. That's why Jesus came. Love was God's sole motivation in His efforts to reach us. He came looking for us and made every conceivable effort to redeem us and restore our relationship to Him. But God's love... Even though that's his motive, and because it's his motive, his love requires a choice on our part. Love demands that we're given the choice of either accepting or rejecting him and his love and his offer of eternal life and forgiveness of sins. We have to be given the choice. And we see this incredible situation portrayed in the story of the prodigal son. If you remember the story, the father in the story he had two sons, a younger one and an older one, and the younger one just got to an age where he was fed up with being at home, fed up with the life of the father. He didn't like the rules. He didn't like the house. He didn't like the, all of the stuff that his father required him to do. He says, I'm out of here. Give me my inheritance. I'm out of here. Now, the father could have just chained him to the house and never let him go, but love released him. His father allowed him to leave, which is amazing. But he never gave up hoping that his son would return one day. It seems as we read this story that every day the father was looking down a road, hoping and praying that he would see his son come over the hill toward the house. And then one day that happened in Luke 15, verses 20 through 24. Listen to the conclusion of that story. It says, but when he, that youngest son, was still a great way off, that's important. He wasn't just right at the door. He was a long way down the road still. Way off in the distance, the father saw, he recognized his walk. 
His father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight, and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring out the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet. And bring the fatted calf here and kill it, and let us eat and be merry, for this son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found, and they began to be merry. I think Jesus told this story because it really accurately represents how God feels about each one of us. The father in that story saw his son's heart. He recognized that if my son is making the trip home, he has already got the right heart attitude. There's there's a repentant heart there. He had godly sorrow for his sin. He is turning away from his former lifestyle. And it's just amazing to me that really the story isn't so much about the son as it is the father. This father was to run, who ran toward his son with compassion and greeted him with an embrace and a kiss. Is that the kind of God you imagine your heavenly father is? Or if you were coming home, would you wonder what kind of a greeting you'd receive? I know a lot of us struggle with that. The son in that story was so ashamed of himself and his life. He, he says, just make me a slave. Just one of your servants. Wasn't going to happen. Put a robe on him. Sandals on his feet. Get a robe. Get the best calf we have. This is my son. And I love him. I think when we return home to God with a repentant heart, he greets us with the same embrace, the same love, the same kind of a kiss that says we're loved and accepted in his sight. I know it's hard. It's, it's hard for a lot of us to really believe that God could feel that way about us. Let's face it. Let me explain why that is. It's hard for us to believe that God is that kind of a God because we live in a works wage world. We have to work and earn everything. People praise you when you're good. They shame you when you're bad. And we don't do grace very well on planet Earth that unmerited, undeserved favor. But that's what God is best at. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. It defies logic. We think we should just get what we deserve. Listen, don't ever ask God to give you what you deserve. God gives us more than we deserve. That's what grace is all about. God loves us. That's his motivation. 
But it's hard for us to believe that sometimes, which is when we're talking about returning to our first love, having a more intimate, deeper relationship with God, it's really hard for us to get a hold of that sometimes because how would you, why would you want to have a relationship with a God that you're not too sure whether he likes you or not? Which brings me to the second reason we may struggle to have a relationship with God that's based upon love and acceptance. It's because we failed to understand God's methods and how he works in our lives. In 1 John 1, 5, it says that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. And that can be disturbing. That can be a real disturbing statement. To say that God is light means that there is no sin, no darkness in him, and that he's completely holy in every respect. I think Adam and Eve were very much aware of God's holiness, his righteousness. They walked with him in the cool of the garden of the cool of the day in the Garden of Eden. They spent time with God, walking and talking and having fellowship. I'm fully convinced that that early couple, that pair, they saw Jesus in all of his glory, radiating the glory of God, and I'm fully convinced they radiated the same glory. So we can then imagine how horrified they were the moment they sinned and I think the light went off, the glory disappeared and they realized they were naked. Their response is so typical of us today. What was the very next thing they did when they became aware of their nakedness, when they saw that they had lost something, that they'd done something wrong, they, what was the next thing they did? Genesis 3, 6 through 10 it says, so when the women saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves. From the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord called to Adam and said to him, Where are you? So he said, I heard your voice in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. What this passage tells us is that the first impulse that Adam and Eve had when they realized that they had fallen short of the glory of God was to run and hide, to try to conceal something from the glory and light of God. They wanted to hide the shame and the guilt they felt. They wanted to hide from the presence of the Lord because his person, his holiness was too convicting and too painful for them to look upon, for him to look upon that. And they knew they couldn't bear the thought that God would see them that way. In fact, I, I've had a lot of people think this. They, they talk to me and they say, well, I'll get right with God when I clean my life up. It's like I got to be a little more presentable before I want to get right with Jesus. I, 
I want to quit a bunch of stuff and then I'll, then I'll go see him. Then I'll have a relationship with him. Then maybe I'll think about becoming a Christian. So it's interesting. What was the thing they did to compensate for what they'd lost? They got busy and went to work and made their own clothes out of fig leaves of all things. Perishable garments to cover up their nakedness and hide their sin. And even worse, they were now terrified of the God they had walked with in perfect fellowship the day before. You can imagine the terror that must have struck their hearts when God, they heard him say, where are you? And at that moment, they faced a crossroads and a decision of eternal proportions. They could have allowed their shame and guilt to overwhelm them, and they could have stayed in hiding. I don't want to go see God and have to face him with what I know I've lost. I don't want him to see me in my sin and my guilt and my shame. I'll just stay in hiding. Or, worse yet, they could have run the other way. I'm out of here. I don't want to have to admit what I've done. Let's keep in mind that God knew exactly where they were. He knew exactly what they had done. He wasn't in the dark. He knew exactly what had happened. And that's why he was pursuing them. He came looking for them. He knew they disobeyed his commandment. And his voice and question were designed to achieve one and only one thing. And that was to invite Adam and Eve to come out of hiding in the darkness and step into the light. So their deeds could be exposed. The dilemma they faced, this Adam and Eve, is exactly what Jesus was telling us and describing in this text that we read in John chapter 3. He said, and this is the condemnation that light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light. And does not come to the light lest his deeds should be exposed, but he who does the truth comes to the light that his deeds may be clearly seen that they've been done in God. That's a crossroads we face in our Christian lives. So whenever we sin, we're at that crossroads. Will I go into hiding and stay in the dark or will I step into the light and allow God to cleanse me, heal me, forgive me, and restore the relationship? When our failures and our character faults and our sins are exposed, let's be honest, it's a painful experience. The pain isn't so much physical as it is psychological and spiritual. And when God's light exposes our sin, it's awfully hard on our pride. And we will tend to feel worthless as a human being because of our failure. It's not only hard on our ego, but we're terrified of the consequences we may have to suffer for our transgression. I want to give you a modern-day, real-life illustration of what I'm talking about. To me, it's amazing that when little children disobey their parents and are found out, their instinctive reaction is to do one of five things. See if this isn't true. The first thing that I think children will do is they will deny they did anything wrong. They'll lie. 
So the parent will say, did you hit the cat? No. Well, then why is it limping? A second response that little children will have is this. They'll hang their head and say nothing, not admitting to anything they did. I didn't hear you. I don't even acknowledge you're here. (laughs) I know nothing. I see nothing. Third, shift the blame and responsibility to someone else. No, I didn't hit the cat. Johnny did. Or here's a good one. They can claim ignorance. Well, I didn't know you didn't tell me that it was wrong to hit the cat. I didn't know that was a rule in the house. You mean that's a bad thing to do? Or here's a good one. Run the other way, hoping that you can outrun the parents. (laughs) Hey, isn't that true? You can see mom and dad running after the kids, and they're just beating feet to the backyard trying to get out of the way because they know this isn't going to be good if they're caught. I've seen all five of those. I watched that happen. Let me suggest that even as grown-ups, we can tend to do the same thing. When it comes to God asking us, where are you? To put this all another way, how many children or teenagers do you know whose first impulse is to run to their parents when they've done something wrong and immediately confess what they did so they can be properly disciplined? (laughs) Yes, Dom and Dad, I was going 85 miles in a 45-mile-an-hour zone. The police pulled me over, and so here, do what you hear. Here's my keys. Take my license. I don't think so. Where did we learn that? From our first parents. We don't want to be exposed. We don't want anybody to turn on the light. Makes us feel guilty and ashamed, and those are terrible things to feel. So we'll choose one of those five options. We try to hide, cover up, run from God, shift the blame. Isn't that what Adam and Eve did? Well, let's see. The Eve said, uh, it was that serpent. That was the thing that got me in trouble. Then the, you know, the husband Adam, he says, well, God, it was this woman that you gave me, you know. That's why I got all messed up here. It wasn't my fault. It was the woman. It was you. You gave her to me after all, so it really wasn't my fault. We got all kinds of ways to deny and rationalize and excuse and hide. And at the end of the day, it's, it's no different from what little kids do. Fortunately, when God asked them the question, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you that you should not eat? Thankfully, they eventually said, both of them, I ate. That was the best two words they've ever spoken in their lives. They confessed. They came to the light. The fig leads had to go. And God had to clothe them with garments of salvation. Coming to the light, as most of you know, our spiritual theme is, again, returning to our first love. But to return suggests that we have left or wandered from the kind of relationship that we were designed to have with God. 
And I know there are a lot of reasons why this can happen. We can get caught up in the busyness of life or get preoccupied with things or good things, but things that are less than the best, which is a daily walk with God. We may have wandered because we know there's a closet of darkness in our lives and we just, we'd rather not have that exposed. So we keep a healthy distance. But I know from personal experience that one of the reasons we may have wandered or become distant from God is because we've allowed guilt and shame over our failures to cause us to hide from the presence of the Lord. We're afraid of God and what he might say to us, but Jesus said this, he who does the truth comes to the light that his deeds may be clearly seen that they've been done in God. I gave this message the title, Double Exposure, because double exposure happens when we sin. When we sin, there is this exposure that happens. We are aware of something that we've lost. Our conscience begins to bother us. We feel guilty and ashamed. And that guilt and shame we feel makes us aware that we've fallen short of God's holy and righteous character. It also happens when we then leave that darkness and then come to God and come to terms with Him about what we've done. We admit the truth and allow His light to expose and cleanse us of our unrighteousness, guilt, and shame. Adam and Eve were exposed twice. Once when they sinned and once when they were restored. As I was preparing this message, I had one thing in mind. I believe God is, through this, this message and this passage we're studying tonight, God's inviting us to come to the light and to believe that he is for us, not against us. But to do this, we'll need to accept one fact without question, and that is when we fail, and let's face it, we all will sometime, God isn't set on our destruction and he will never condemn or reject us. His heart toward us is always to love and restore us and to help us learn from our failures. Let's not forget it was God who went looking for Adam and Eve. It was God who asked the questions and invited them to confess their sin, all the while knowing what they'd done. It was God who clothed them with garments to cover their nakedness in every way, physical, psychological, spiritual, God doesn't leave us exposed and guilty. He forgives and cleanses us and walks with us even through the consequences of our sinful choices. God's promise to us in 1 John 1, 7 is this, is if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. What a wonderful promise. spiritual nakedness in your life through your achievements or work, family, friends, appearance, possessions. You know, we got a lot of different kind of fig leaves, don't we? A lot of things that we put out there to sort of hide, hide behind and cover up the guilt and the shame that we can feel. We're trying to convince ourselves and other people that we're doing just fine, but listen, God sees our hearts. He knows exactly where we are. And he's asking and inviting us to step out of the darkness and into the light of his presence. He's asking all of us tonight, where are you? 
Where are you? I want a relationship with you. I don't want you to be distant. I don't want you to feel estranged. I don't want to leave you guilty and ashamed and in the dark. But we have to step out. And how we respond to that question about our spiritual condition is the most important answer to God will ever give him. Jesus said, God did not send his, world, his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He who believes in him is not condemned. But he who does not believe is condemned already because he's not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Tonight, to find a relationship with God or return to him with a genuine and sincere heart will mean that we choose to stand in the light of his presence and allow him to expose the darkness that holds us captive. The good news is that God is always willing to forgive, to cleanse, and heal us. If we will just take that step and say, Lord, I have sinned, and I confess that to you. And when we do that, God says, I forgive you. I cleanse and wash away the unrighteousness, the guilt and the shame. I want to close in prayer tonight, and as I do, I'm going to invite all of us in this congregation, would you join me in just a prayer of confession right from the heart? And, and in your own way, maybe there is something that the Holy Spirit has brought to your mind even as I've been sharing this message, some little area of darkness that maybe you have experienced or are aware of or something. It could be unforgiveness, some bitterness you're holding on to toward another person. Whatever it is, whatever the darkness is that's clouding your soul, I'm inviting you to just confess that to the Lord. Say, Lord, I, I just need you. I am admitting to you what I've done. Please forgive me. Please cleanse me of that. Lord, I don't want to live in the dark, ashamed and guilty. If you're not a Christian, I want to encourage you to join in this prayer as well and speak to God from your heart. And as you invite the Lord Jesus to be your personal Savior and the Lord of your life, you can be certain that God will hear and answer your prayer because the Bible tells you this, that whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Would you bow your heads with me in prayer? I want to invite all of you in this room just to join me in a prayer of humble and contrite confession and repentance. So would you just follow me in this prayer as we speak to God and we say, Dear Lord Jesus, please forgive me. Forgive me for my sins that I've committed against you and other people. Please come into my heart and cleanse me of my unrighteousness. Please fill me with your Holy Spirit and heal me. Lord, I receive you tonight as my Savior and the Lord of my life, thank you for your forgiveness. Thank you for saving me and for the gift of eternal life. In Jesus' name. 
You can contact the church office Tuesday through Thursday from 9 to 5 and Fridays from 9 to 3 at 503-266-4444. Please visit us on the web anytime at canbefoursquare.com. Pastor Ron and others on New Life staff, along with occasional guest speakers, trust that the Holy Spirit will use the message to teach you, encourage you, and give you hope.